What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is episode 237 of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and you can follow our social pages on Twitter and Facebook for the latest updates. You can also uh, follow me if you'd like on Twitter um, at the Sports Guy 97. You can also uh, read some of my written content at Musket Fire. I know it's been a little bit quiet on that front recently, but uh, hoping to get back to writing some some articles in the near future for you folks. Um, would also like to add as just a kind of a programming note. You may have noticed that we uh, missed Guest Friday last week had a bit of a scheduling issue with our guest, so uh, we're hoping to get that guest back in at some point. Um, so, sorry about that. That was uh, not something that I was anticipating, but uh, we will get that guest in at some point. Uh, guest Friday this week, Eric Bellier is back. We're previewing the uh, MLB season, um, so I'm looking forward to that this week. So you have that uh, to look forward to. So speaking of baseball, uh, that's where we're starting today. Uh, we're going to start with the Red Sox. And I uh, can't believe it's already here. You know, I know that I'll probably say that's Eric when we talk this week, but uh, kind of can't believe that, you know, opening day is here and, you know, we're finally going to get to see this Red Sox team play some games, you know, and I think that we'll finally really get to see this team in action. And, you know, I think that it's, you know, one could argue that spring training is a little bit too long, you know, but it's also like at the same time, you know, early March is a, you know, it's just, it's tough in some of these cold weather cities like Boston, where it's like, yeah, it's still 45 degrees and it's still very cold to be playing baseball. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, is it's here and uh, Thursday, the Red Sox will open the season um, against the Baltimore Orioles at Fenway, uh, 210 start. So, you know, <laughs> It's exciting. You know, I think me personally, not as much of a big baseball person, I think, as I used to be. Uh, but I think, you know, there's always excitement opening day, you know, that anything can happen. You know, it's one of those things where even if you know your team isn't going to be very good, you know, and I'm not saying that that's the case with the Red Sox, you know, it could be. But, you know, it's just the idea that it's just, you know, opening day for everyone. And, you can feel confident about anything, even if your team is, you know, projected to be one of the worst teams in the league, you can still get that excitement on opening day. So, you know, looking forward to it from a Red Sox perspective, um, there's already been, you know, some things that the Red Sox have done, you know, I guess, I guess cutting guys might be a bit of a extreme word, but I do think that the Red Sox have, you know, tried to cut down their opening day roster a little bit couple guys I think have been optioned at uh, AAA at this point. So we'll take a look at those guys in a little bit. But the important thing is, you know, it's it's a new season, you know, and I know that this is a team that doesn't really seem to have many expectations. You know, really, I think the expectations of this team are that they're you know, not expected to do very much, you know, and I think that that can, in my opinion, I think it can work in a positive way, 
you know, that there's no expectations of this team to win 95 games and go to the, go to the World Series. You know, this isn't a team that's, <clears throat> this wasn't a team that was put together in the offseason to be like, okay, you're going to go and compete for a World Series. I know that that's, you know, something that some fans wanted, but I do think that, you know, this is a year that I don't think that there are, you know, wild expectations. I think that, you know, you look at a team like the Mets, they spent a lot of money to go and try to win. And, you know, the expectations for that team are, you know, a world diff- a world's difference from this Red Sox team. And I think that, you know, just with some of the changes in leadership and just the low expectation, I think that this is a year that could be very similar to a 2013, you know, in which that team coming in, coming off a last place finish, had no expectations, made a lot of, you know, somewhat decent additions in the offseason, and they went on to win, was it 93, 94, 94 games and win the World Series? You know, I'm not saying that this is a team that can go that far, but when you have a team with no expectations, it's dangerous, you know, because honestly, they don't really know any better. And I think you have a lot of question marks in this team, but, you know, I think that there are guys that are coming in with good attitudes. And I think that oftentimes, if you come in with a positive attitude, if you come in with, you know, energy and excitement that often does, you know, carry over into the team's performance. So, you know, you hope some of the excitement and the energy from training camp, you know, and some of the guys that participated in the World Baseball Classic can come into the start of the season and be like, all right, like, let's get to it. And, you know, not worry about what other people's expectations are. So, you know, it's going to be exciting. I think it is. You know, this is a team that I think a lot of questions, but if these questions are, you know, answered and answered in a positive way, I think this team can win 90 games. You know, I think you get the rotation to stay healthy. I think that's the most important thing for this team. You know, you find consistent hitting in this lineup, consistent power. And then I think the third thing is making sure that that bullpen is as good as you want it to be. You know, the Red Sox, I think, clearly, in my opinion at least, clearly went into the offseason with the idea that they were going to improve this bullpen and improve upon a group that, you know, was really one of the worst in the league last year. And I think, you know, any any thought of this Red Sox team competing last year, you know, really kind of came down to the bullpen not being able to hold leads. So, you know, I think that that's, those are kind of the three biggest things for me is rotation health, you know, power bats in the rotation, you know, who are the unexpected guys that are going to do it? You know, you know, the Devers is going to be mashing. That's not a concern, but I think it's the other guys, whether it's Casas or, you know, Yoshida or Alex Verdugo, whoever it is, you know, can they get consistency from that? And then, you know, the bullpen, can can it be consistent? Can Kenley Jansen be the very strong closer that he's been throughout his career? So, you know, those are kind of the three big things for me is those are kind of the, 
you know, big important parts of this team. So, you know, we'll see how Corey Kluber does uh, opening day Thursday. Chris Sale then will go Saturday, I believe, as I think there's an off day after the first game. So, you know, I think that it's don't really have any issues with Kluber going first. I mean, I think it's going to be what it's going to be. You know, I think I understand that, you know, Cora kind of wanted Sale to, you know, not be not be just focusing on the start on the first game, you know, and kind of wanting him to take in some of that opening day stuff without the, you know, pressure of him having to pitch. I'm not saying that, you know, Chris isn't used to pressure because he definitely is, but I think it might just be a way for him to, you know, ease into it. And I think you've seen the early returns are solid in spring training, you know, no setbacks, nothing like that. He's looked good. He sounded good. You know, he seems like he's excited, you know, and I think it goes back to that mindset. If you have a positive mindset, things can go well, you know, and I do think that that's what's going to permeate with this team, um, especially if they can get off to an early start, a good start early, you know, and I've, you know, been repeating this over the last few weeks, but it's a decent schedule the Red Sox have to open the season, you know, a set against Baltimore, the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, and then the Detroit Tigers. So, you know, it's nine games against teams that probably will not be very good this season. So, you know, it's a it's a big opportunity. So I think look for the team to get off to a good start. Um, you know, I think good, solid pitching. You know, the rotation likely is going to look a little bit different um, in the early couple first couple weeks of the season you know, as Whitlock and Brian Bayo are working their ways back, but I don't expect that they're going to miss much time. You know, don't think they'll be on the opening day roster, but I think, you know, Whitlock is scheduled to pitch in Worcester, so make at least one rehab start. So, you know, you could see him very, very, very soon. You know, Bayo probably as well. So, you know, it's not a rotation that, you know, initially I think what it looks like, it's, you know, not as not as deep as you were thinking, but I think as they get into the season, you're going to get the five man of, you know, Sale, Kluber, Pavetta, Whitlock, and Bayo. You know, I think that you're going to have Cutter Crawford and Tanner Houck starting the year in the rotation, which honestly I'm not super excited about in terms of Houck. I don't think he's looked very good in spring training, but, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. I mean, I think if it was up to me, I'd rather have Josh Winkowski in the rotation uh, to start the year. I really liked his stuff in spring training. So, you know, but I think it honestly probably isn't going to make too much of a difference. But uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, just how soon Bayo and Whitlock can return um, to the rotation. And then in terms of the lineup, you know, I'll take a look at a couple of guys that I think already have been sent down to Worcester. Bobby Dahlbeck, um, who I think I was... Pleasantly surprised with the spring that he had. You know, I think that he came in with a good attitude, you know, and an attitude of he's going to do whatever it takes to help the team, you know, whether that was playing shortstop, you know, playing in areas that we didn't really think he, we'd see him. So I think, you know, you hope that he doesn't get too down on himself, you know, that he'll be up at times this season, you know, as kind of a utility person. So, you know, I hope that he doesn't take it to heart. 
because I was impressed with the spring that he had. So, you know, that'll be interesting to see when you see him. Um, when you see him um, in the majors this season, because you, I think, almost certainly will. Um, Jorge Alfaro was also optioned to Worcester. You know, seems like the Red Sox are pretty bullish on Connor Wong um, as he'll start the year in Boston. So curious to see that. I really did like Alfaro also in spring training, but I think that this tells you that this is a team that could have some pretty quality depth at AAA, you know, if they need it. So I think looking at just the other utility type of guys, Yu Chang um, played in the World Baseball Classic, was pretty good for the Red Sox in spring. So he's a utility guy that you'll see around the infield. Um, I also think at Alberto Mondesi, you'll also see um, as he was traded to the Red Sox, I think early in spring training, uh, mainly a shortstop. Uh, can play other positions in the infield, so um, you'll see when he recovers from injury. Um, I also think there's going to be a decision coming about uh, Rymel Tapia, who had a really good spring training, um, but curious to see, you know, where he fits into that outfield, because I think you're going to see an outfield of Yoshida Duval and Verdugo left to right. You know, Ref Snyder probably is going to be on the roster, and then it's like, okay, where does Tapia fit in if he does? You know, where does Duran fit in if he does? So, you know, I think those are just some questions still about who's going to, you know, make the lineup. You know, I think that the outfield is pretty set. You know, I think Turner most likely is going to be your DH every day. Um, Casas, obviously, at first, Arroyo, Devers, and Hernandez around the infield, Reese McGuire most likely will be the starting catcher for most games. Um, then Connor Wong obviously will do some catching as well. So, yeah, that's kind of what this roster looks like. And I think, you know, as I said again, the amount of games that you have against not very good teams to start the year, I think it would really be beneficial um, for this team as they have two final spring training games against the Braves today and tomorrow, and then they will make the trip to Boston to open the season against the Orioles. So obviously you'll see Kluber Thursday afternoon, Sale Saturday afternoon, and then Hauk on Sunday, and then Crawford and Pavetta. So actually it's a little bit of a different rotation as I thought. So it's Kluber, Sale, Hauk, Crawford, and Pavetta. That will be the first turn through the, through the rotation. I'm curious to see when... Bayo and Whitlock come back if they come back in that second turn of the rotation, or is it going to be another? Because I think as much as you want to see these guys get into action early, you don't want to rush them, you know, and I think that you want to make sure that guys are into enough of a rhythm. It's good to see that Whitlock's going to get um, a rehab start in Worcester. Don't know about Bayo, but I think just making sure that physically these guys are right before they come back. And I think it could also help that, you know, Crawford and how get starts in the early part of the season so that if the Red Sox need to call upon them at some point in the regular season, you know, they can be ready to go have a couple starts under their breast or under their, a couple starts under their belt. So uh, before we move on, I did want to talk about a couple more things is kind of some 
bold predictions that I have for this season. Uh, my first one, and I thought about this a lot while watching the uh, bits that I saw from the World Baseball Classic. Um, I think Yoshida uh, wins American League Rookie of the Year. That's my uh, that's my hot take, or one of my hot takes for the Red Sox, or predictions, or whatever you want to call it. But I think that he had, makes a seamless transition uh, to the major league game. You know, I think he instantly becomes a fan favorite, instantly becomes a guy that everyone roots for. So I think that he's going to do really well here. You know, I don't really have a lot to back that up other than, you know, his performance from the World Baseball Classic, you know, what he's done in the limited spring training that he's played. Um, but I really liked what I saw from him and the early returns, I think, are really good. So I think that he is going to have a really good season. Um, I think also, and this is also pretty bold, but I think Chris Sale makes about 25 to 30 starts this season. Um, and I know that that might sound crazy, but I think that he is in the right mindset. I think, yeah, he has the injuries, and that's absolutely legit, but I think his mindset has been really positive. Um, you know, a guy that's only made 11 starts over the last two years, uh, made 25 starts in 2019. Um, I think that that's where you're going to get him, around 25 to 30 starts that I think he makes the majority of his starts this year. Um, I think another prediction is his team wins close to 90 games and is in the mix for a playoff spot. I'm not going to go out and say they're going to make the playoffs, but I think that they're going to be in the mix. I think they're going to surprise some people. Uh, surprise some people. Um, I also think that uh, Trevor Story will return in a timely manner, um, and he'll give this team a big boost when he returns. Um, and then I also think that uh, Jaron Duran is going to have a good season. Um, I think he is going to um, overtake someone for a spot in the outfield. Not saying that he's going to be a starter, but I think he could beat out, you know, Ref Snyder at a point this season and become, you know, kind of that regular fourth outfielder. So those are just some of the, I guess, bold predictions that I have uh, for this team this year. But I think. Don't be surprised if this team uh, plays well at points this season um, and is in the mix for a playoff spot. I don't know if they make it, but I do think that, you know, it's an opportunity for them uh, without many expectations. But I think if they start the season well, I think that it's going to go a long way. You know, I think, don't want to keep harping back on 2013, but that was a team that started really well in April. It was a team that went, I think, 18-8 in the month of April and, you know, parlayed that into a strong rest of the season in which they won over 90 games. So I think that's what you're going to see with this team. Um, I think that the loss of Bogarts may be a little bit overstated with this group, um, and I think that they might do all right without him. So, yeah, I mean, I think... That's probably going to do it for the Sox. You know, as I said, a couple more spring training games today and tomorrow. And then the season opener uh, Thursday afternoon at Fenway, Red Sox and Orioles, 2 o'clock. 
you know, I would think about going to that game, but it's probably going to be cold. So if you do go to the game, bundle up. You know, hopefully it's a it's a decent weather day uh, at Fenway Park. So obviously we will preview more of the baseball season uh, with Eric Bellier later this week. And we'll probably talk a little bit about the Red Sox, but uh, yeah, just a preeminent happy opening day to everyone on Thursday. Looking forward to this season. So I think we're going to move to uh, talking about the Bruins and a team that has uh, continued to bounce back from their little bit of a rut uh, a week and a half ago. And they won all four of their games this past week. You know, we talked about the kind of a little bit challenging that this week was going to be, you know, with some of these opponents um, and some of these, you know, teams that you could very likely play in the playoffs. And, you know, the Bruins responded in every single one of these games, you know, whether they needed to respond with good, solid defensive play, good goaltending, you know, being a team that's, you know, willing to go go toe-to-toe with a uh, team that uh, really tried to, you know, intimidate you. Um, and then, you know, just a gutsy performance on the road uh, without some of your some of your main contributors. So, you know, really impressed with this group's game uh, this weekend, especially. You know, I think that you go all the way back to Tuesday, and this is a team that, you know, really relied on good goaltending to beat um, Ottawa. And then, you know, clearly there was some extra stuff in that Montreal game, but I think the Bruins responded really well. Um, and then obviously this weekend, you know, really kind of the biggest final test, in my opinion, before the playoffs, a back-to-back against the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Carolina Hurricanes. And the Bruins came out you know, victorious, obviously, in both of those games, but, you know, really came together in that shootout win uh, yesterday. And then Saturday, I think, to me, that was the game that was most impressive for me this week. Uh, A team like Tampa Bay, a team that you're going to like, I mean, very good chance that you play this team um, in the playoffs in the second round, you know, if they can get by Toronto, a team that have come in losing three straight games, you know, kind of a game that I think that, you know, John Cooper was looking for a response from his team, you know, and that response came nine seconds into the game, a couple guys dropping the gloves, uh, Pat Maroon and Garnet Hathaway just going at it. And I think, you know, this was one of those games where it wasn't, you know, the prettiest game. It wasn't a free-flowing, free you know, offensive game where there were chances left and right. This was a grinded-out, defensive-type game um, and a, you know, type of intimidation-type game where you're going to play a lot of these games in the playoffs where it's low-scoring, you know, hard to get to the dirty areas. But this was a team that was coming in desperate, you know, and a very, very good team. And the Bruins stood up to the task. You know, I think even in the first, you know, scrum or whatever you want to call it, you know, I think the Bruins really made a point that, yeah, we know you're going to try to intimidate us, but we're not going to have it. You know, we're going to, we're going to, 
you know, we're going to come back at you. And just was really impressed with the Bruins' ability to kind of stand up to that physical intimidation, which is something that I think a lot of teams are going to try to do in the playoffs. You know, whoever the first-round opponent is for the Bruins, certainly Tampa Bay, you know, and then certainly Carolina, you know. So I just was impressed with the way that they were able to withstand that physical punishment, be able to, you know, make enough plays, you know, get the, get the goals. Um, you know, I think that clearly for me, and I think for some other people, there still are some kind of big concerns with the power play. The Bruins have gotten, did get a couple power play goals over the weekends. So that was good. But, you know, that's kind of something in the back of my head where, the Bruins need to get a little bit more consistent with that. Um, you know, they sometimes become too stagnant, you know, and try, try, try too hard. You know, the zone entries have been a big problem. They just think that they have to get it together because, you know, and I said this, I think I said this last week that, yes, the playoffs five on five is very important, but I do think in recent years it's becoming more and more, you know, if you perform well on the power play, you know, you're a team that's going to go go deep. And if you don't, you're a team that's going to lose. And I think the Bruins are a team that, you know, obviously have a lot of talent, but those results, like, they need to get results, you know. And I, I really don't like it when, you know, the Nesson guys talk about, you know, getting a power play that gets a lot of shots on goal, but there are no results. And it's like, you need to get results because there are going to be teams that you play in the playoffs. They're going to have good power play days where they score a couple power play goals. And they just feel like, you know, you can't, you can't let that happen. You can't, you know, let another team beat you with their power play. Um, and I know the Bruins penalty kill has been very good, but I just think that, you know, if you're not able to score power play goals at a consistent rate, you know, that might be something that comes back to bite you. But you know, it was good to see a couple power play goals this weekend. Um, you know, Bergeron getting that one against Tampa, and then Pasternak scoring one last night in Carolina. His 51st of the season had gotten his 50th, you know, earlier in the game. So, you know, I think, as I said again, you know, that game against Tampa Bay really kind of a grinded out, you know, playoff type of game, and the Bruins responded really well. You know, Hathaway was really big in this game. Um, and the Bruins, I think, for the most part, played some good hockey yesterday. You know, I think Carolina coming back to tie the game in the third period wasn't great. But I think the Bruins' ability to recover, you know, get to the shootout, get the win. I know that, you know, shootouts don't matter because they don't happen in the playoffs. So, you know, that's not something the Bruins are going to have to worry about. But, you know, good on them to get a couple goals in the shootout. You know, Swayman was... Uh, tremendous in this game um, and I think that he's really I think creeping into our minds as you know a possible goalie tandem that could happen in the playoffs where you know you could start either one of these guys and feel really good you know I do think that ultimately it's Olmark's net and he's the guy that's going to be the go-to guy in the playoffs but I do also think the amount of games that you're going to be playing, you might need someone like Swayman to come in and play a game or two. You know, it's not unheard of to use two goalies in the playoffs. You know, it's not conventional necessarily. 
but I do think the Bruins may want to be careful of Olmark's workload. Um, they certainly are down the stretch, and as Swayman, it seems like, is playing a lot more, and he's playing well, too, which, you know, gives you a lot of confidence that should you need him in the playoffs, you know, he's a guy that you can you can count on. So, you know, I think that it's not much of a concern, you know. You have two good goalies and two goalies that you can rely on, two guys that, you know, I think have the ability to play really high-level hockey. So I think it's it's not a concern. You have one guy who's probably going to win the Vezina Trophy, and then you have another guy who's, you know, probably the best backup in the league. So, you know, it's a good problem to have, you know, but I don't think that they're going to be, you know, switching guys off, you know, every game in the playoffs. I don't think that that's what's going to happen. But, you know, you could see if the Bruins get into a, a series deficit or a series lead, they might give a game to the other guy. You know, I'm not necessarily a big fan of that because I do feel like, you know, if you go up 3-1 to one and have a 3-1 series lead, you roll with the guy that's gotten you to a 3-1 lead. You don't give the game to another guy. But, you know, that said, you have two quality goalies that, you know, you have confidence in, you know, in any situation. So, you know, really excited for this group and they just continue to win. This is a team that, you know, equaled the all-time uh, win record uh, for this for the Bruins franchise with their 57th win yesterday. So the Bruins can set a team record with their 58th win uh, Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday night against uh, Nashville. So the Bruins have a couple of opponents coming in this week, Nashville, Columbus, um, Tuesday, Thursday, and then a weekend back-to-back. Again, the Bruins will play uh, Pittsburgh and then St. Louis Saturday and Sunday, both of those games away. So I think, you know, obviously tremendous accomplishment uh, for David Poster not getting his 50th and 51st goals of the season. You know, that first goal yesterday kind of looked like a, uh, you know, missed stick handle. Maybe he did it on purpose, but either way, a tremendous achievement uh, for Pasta. You know, I think that just playing at the highest level he's played at this year, uh, 97 points in 73 games will almost certainly get over 100 points, which is a huge accomplishment for, you know, the one of the best players in the league. And I think, you know, yesterday I was very pleased with their effort, especially, you know, missing three lineup regulars, you know, Marshan, Bergeron, Lindholm, you know, all stayed home, I think, for that quick trip down to, down to Carolina. Um, but I was really impressed that they were able to hold their own against one of the best teams in the league without, you know, three of their, arguably three of their most important players. You know, I think that Lindholm, you know, no offense to McAvoy, but I think Lindholm's been the better defenseman this season and I think is absolutely more deserving of being a candidate for the Norris Trophy. Don't know if he should necessarily win it, but he's a guy that's excelled in every single situation that the Bruins have put him in. He's 49 points, you know, far surpassing his career high in Anaheim, which I think was 34, 34 points. So, you know, looking at a guy who's, yeah, 34 points was his career high in his second year. You're looking at a guy who's on the precipice of 50 points for a defenseman, you know, which 
I know it's not that crazy this day and age, but, you know, just the, you think about the different situations that he plays in, you know, five on five, he's great, you know, shorthanded, he's great. You know, the Bruins are, are asking him, I think, to do a little bit more with Forbert being injured. But it's like he's been great on the power play, you know, has scored some big goals, um, just as always in the right place at the right time. And it just, you know, I, I laugh because he just makes everything so much easier for the Bruins defense and especially Charlie McAvoy. You know, I think that that was not a concern, but it was like, when the Bruins had just McAvoy, you know, it was like, okay, can you get another, you know, big impact defenseman? And the Bruins did. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's great that you're going to see the two of these guys as pillars of this Bruins defense for years to come. We're not even just talking about this year. So just those two guys have been great. But Lindholm, I think in particular, um, has been awesome. You know, Bergeron, obviously. We don't really need to go into detail about how great he's been this year. Uh, but I think Marchand has been solid as well. You know, maybe not necessarily the goal totals as we're used to, but I think that he's played really good hockey at times. Uh, and it was also, yes, yeah, I thought I had watching the game yesterday. You know, Bertuzzi, I think, taking um, top-line duty with Krejci and Pasternak uh, was important because I think... You know, the Bruins want to make make sure that guys can play with other guys, you know, so it's not like they're out of options. If, you know, a certain line kind of doesn't get their mojo going, the Bruins can say, oh, okay, we can move this guy for this guy, and they'll be okay because they've played minutes together. And I think that while some people don't necessarily like the mixing up of the lines, I think it makes sense because you never know if you might need, you know, that particular combination to get a try in a game, you know, if things aren't working or if there's an injury or something like that. It's not like, oh, a foreign concept to put, you know, Bertuzzi with Krejci and Pasternak, you know, if Zaka maybe isn't playing very well or, you know, has an injury, you can put him up there on the second line or on the first line, you know, if DeBrusque is struggling, you know, I think it's just the idea that you can put guys with any group and they'll, you know, perform. So that was nice to see Bertuzzi getting an opportunity. Um, he's been really good. I mean, he's been an almost seamless fit with this team since the trade. You know, Orlov's been really good. I don't think that he's been necessarily as, you know, obvious burst onto the scene, which he did with, you know, goals in his first couple of games. But he's a guy that I think has been tremendous with what he's brought to the brought to the defense. You know, a guy that can play major minutes so that you don't have to look at Lindholm and McAvoy and be like, you guys have to play 30 minutes a night in the playoffs. You know, because he's a guy that's been through a lot of the battles, has won a Stanley Cup, has played, you know, I think he played 26 minutes last night a guy that can play heavy minutes. And if you, you know, it's just, it's crazy to think that the Bruins could go into the playoffs with McAvoy, Lindholm, and Orlov on three separate pairings and have three guys that can drive their own pairing, so to speak. So it's just kind of a crazy thought to think of. Um, you know, Bertuzzi, obviously, with 
I think had an assist last night, um, but had six points in his first 12. Um, you know, Hathaway, obviously, has been great too. You know, not the point production necessarily, but I don't think his game is necessarily dependent on that. So, you know, I think uh, I've been impressed with him. You know, Jacob Lauko, I think, has played really well. It was really too bad to see him um, suffer what looked like a knee injury last night. You know, don't really want to speculate further, but, you know, hoping that it's not anything serious because he's been, I think, just an excellent breath of fresh air with the Bruins on that, you know, middle and bottom six. And it's not like, you know, the other guys have been stale or anything, but I think he just brings that instant energy and a guy that, you know, hopefully has dodged a serious injury so that he can be a contributor on this team in the playoffs. Because I think he's a guy that you can plug in in a game here and there, and he can be, you know, an energetic, enthusiastic guy on your fourth line that can draw penalties, get to the tough areas, you know, and just play with an edge. So, you know, hoping that he can return and be, or he can return healthy. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, you know, when Hall and Felino come back, you know, if that happens, you're going to probably see Frederick get squeezed out of the lineup. I'm not necessarily a fan of that, but... You know, I think just based on the way that he's played this year, but I think the Bruins are going to have, you know, good problems with, you know, so many guys that are solid and can play um, at any given time. So this was also good to see Jake, Jacob Zaborl, uh getting some games here and there because I think the Bruins do know that the playoffs, when they come around, defensemen do drop like flies. And I think getting him into some games just so he's familiar with playing, you know, makes a lot of sense. So I think look for him to play a lot of games down the stretch so that the Bruins can, you know, keep him fresh if they need to call upon him at any point in the playoffs. And then obviously, you know, goaltending has been great. You know, Derek Forward's been out of the lineup, as has Felino and Hall. Um, not really much... Not really much on either of those guys as to when they're going to return, um, but I do think that there is a good chance you could see Taylor Hall before the playoffs. Doesn't sound like you're going to see Nick Foligno anytime soon, um, and Forbert as well. You know, it seems like the Bruins were pretty quick to say that he's not going to return for the rest of the regular season. Uh, it did sound like surgery is not... They're not thinking surgery, so... You know, that probably tells you the former will return um, at some point. But I think that that has given an opportunity to Orlov and Clifton to be able to play together um, in some games recently. And I think that that's huge because, like I said, if you can have Orlov, McAvoy, and Lindholm on three separate pairs, you're going to make your team a lot more dangerous. And it's just, you're going to give the other team a really tough time to figure out how to game plan against that with, you know, three defensemen on three separate pairs that could easily be number one defensemen on a, on a slew of teams, you know, so teams are going to have to figure out, okay, who are we going to try to attack? You know, it's the same thing with the Bruin forward lines that it's like, you have that first line that's been great. The second line that's been just as good goals, like point, point production this year, you know, probably even better. You have a third line with Charlie Coyle and Bertuzzi, 
And then Taylor Hall, if he comes back, and then a fourth line of, you know, guys who like to, to bang the body and, you know, play hard. And it's like, you know, when I say this, this is a team that, you know, really the Bruins have not been this hard to play against since the Cup teams. You know, it's just a group that can play in any different game. They're not going to be intimidated. Um, and, you know, and I don't want to, you know, sound like I'm being too cocky, but it just, it's, it's hard to envision a team in the NHL right now being able to roll with them for seven games um, in the playoffs. But, you know, obviously we'll see. The playoffs can be a different animal, as we all know. So, you know, it's great to bask in the, the celebration of how good this team has been. You know, that they're about to set the team record for wins. They're very close to setting the, you know, league record for wins and points in a season. But we have to remember that once the playoff hit, once the playoffs hit, all those records, all that stuff goes out the window. And you start at zero and zero, you know, so they can do as well as they're going to do. But we got to remember that there's no no guarantees in playoff hockey. So, you know, we look for the Bruins to continue to, you know, sharpen their game before the playoffs. So uh, Tuesday night, Bruins and Predators at the Garden. And then Columbus comes to visit Thursday. And then the Bruins have... Um, a set of afternoon back-to-backs next weekend traveling to uh, Pittsburgh, a possible first-round opponent, um, and then the St. Louis Blues. So Bruins are, again, pretty busy this week, so wouldn't be surprised if you see some guys uh, taking some games off this week, particularly on the weekend with the back-to-back with travel. So I think we're going to move on, talk a little about the Celtics, who, as we were talking last week, were still kind of in the midst of, you know, some tough times, you know, losing some games on the road, you know, games that a team like the Celtics should not be losing. Um, But I think you've seen some noticeable improvements over the last couple of games. The Celtics have, I think, gotten back to what made them so good offensively in the early parts of the year you know, moving the ball, getting guys involved, putting up a lot of points. You've looked at the point totals that they've put up over the last three games. You know, 132 against the Kings, 120 against the Pacers, 137 last night. Now, yes, I know that the those three teams are not necessarily the best defensive teams in the league, but I think the Celtics really did a great job of putting an exclamation point on a road trip that I think got bumpy at times, but they come they came out and dominated, you know, one of the best teams in the Western Conference. So I was really pleased with that effort. And I also think, um, I think, uh, sorry, this was looking at some breaking news. We're actually going to get to that in a moment, but, um, it just was good to see the Celtics play at such a high level offensively um, against the Kings, against a good team. You know, and they come back with two home games that were key. You know, and I know that, yes, the Spurs and the Pacers are not great teams, but I think you've seen this Celtics team not take teams seriously 
and they kind of just mess around. And, you know, you saw that with losses to the Jazz and the Rockets and some games that they've lost recently. Um, but they, I think, really made it a point that, you know, we are going to, you know, play the, play the way that, the play the way that's expected. Um, they think just everything just flows and looks so smooth when they're playing this way offensively, where, you know, every shot is a good shot. They're making plays for other guys. You know, they can miss a guy like Tatum last night and not be concerned. You know, I think that it just has been awesome to see Jalen playing the way that he is. And I know that there's a lot that's been said over the last week or so, you know, based on the article that came out in the New York Times and some of his comments. But I think, you know, listen, I think my take on that is I think we as fans always want our athletes to be honest and always want the athlete to be telling us exactly how they're feeling. You know, and I think that that's what Jalen did. You know, he just said, you know, what he felt like was necessary to say. And, you know, that's just how it is. And I don't think that it's a thought of, oh, he doesn't want to be here. I don't know if it's. Um, you know, I just, I think it's just, he just said what was on his mind. And, you know, some of the things that he said, I think were, were legitimate. Some of the things that he said about this fan base. And I do think that he's right, that I think sometimes if you don't have a good game, people make it a point to, you know, kind of drag down your character. And it's not just basketball. I mean, we've seen that a lot in this town. There are plenty of examples of, you know, guys being dragged down constantly if they don't have a good game. I mean, Tugarask might be the, you know, biggest, you know, I don't want to say biggest offender, but like the athlete that it, that had dealt with that the most, that every single loss that he had was a, you know, personal indictment on his career. And I think that there are some people that do go after Jalen when he has a bad game or, you know, makes a comment that people don't like or people would like for him to, you know, shut up and play the game. But it's just like, I'm sorry, you can't have that expectation with with athletes these days because it's like these guys are human beings. These guys are, you know, this is what they do for a living. doesn't define who they are. And so I think, you know, there is some truth to some of the things that he said, but I don't think it's anything major to be like, oh, he wants to be traded or he doesn't want to be here anymore, you know, or things like that. I think people were a little bit quick to kind of liken his responses to, you know, something Kyrie Irving would say. And it's just like, I don't think that that's fair, you know, and that's kind of the point of some of the things that, that he was saying, that there are is a part of the fan base that, you know, for whatever reason doesn't like him and, you know, again, kind of attacks his, you know, attacks him as a player if he doesn't have a, a good game. And it's like, you know, thinking that, you know, he's saying something negative is exactly that type of thinking. So, you know, I think that's just, 
my thoughts on it at the end, the end of the at the end of the day. I don't think that it's a major concern to have. You know, I think that that's not something that we should be talking about right now. You know, we should be talking about this team getting their mojo back offensively and you know being a team that I think a couple of weeks ago we didn't think that the number one seed was possible. It's still very possible. You know, the Celtics are, are playing well at the right time. You know, really, I think, playing at a high level before they go and play the Bucks on Thursday night. The Celtics will have a game against the Wizards in Washington on, on Tuesday. But I think you want to focus on basketball. And I think right now the Celtics are playing basketball the way that they want to and doing the things that, you know, they're good at. So... You know, it is great to see that that number one seed is still in play. Celtics just a game and a half back um, at this point with uh, seven games um, on the schedule. And the Celtics still have some plenty, good, good amount of home games uh, before the end of the season. But I think obviously key matchups with both the Bucks and the Sixers uh, before, the, before the end of the season. Um, so I do think, yes, that that Bucks game Thursday is probably going to be a deciding factor on who gets the number one seed. Um, so I think if the Celtics are able to win that game, gives them a great chance. But even if they don't get the number one seed, it still tells you that you can play this Bucks team and play them really well. I mean, this is a team that played the Bucks without a majority of their starters the last time they played and took the Bucks to overtime. It took a career game from Drew Holiday for the Bucks to beat the Celtics. So, you know, don't be too surprised if the Celtics win that game um, in Milwaukee. But I think even if they don't get the number one seed, it still tells them that, yes, you can play with this team. And it's not a team that you should be worried about because I think when the Celtics are focused on what they're doing, you know, playing the way that they're capable of, you know, don't I don't think there's a team in the NBA that can beat them to be quite honest. So, you know, I think they just have to continue what they're doing offensively, making sure guys get minutes and guys get playing time. Um, you know, it was good to see that Brogdon and Derek White played really well yesterday. You know, I think that games that Tatum doesn't play, I think that it was good that he didn't play yesterday, you know, kind of give him a game off. You know, I think the good thing is, you know, when Tatum doesn't play, you have other guys that can kind of fill some of that scoring void, you know, with Brogdon and with White. So something positive to to feel about with this team. But I think, you know, the Celtics, despite losing a couple games on the road trip, they are playing some pretty good basketball, pretty good basketball, you know, since losing the three in a row, three out of four to the Knicks, uh, Cavs, and the Nets. Celtics have won seven out of nine, you know, so I think it's good that they've kind of picked their game up a little bit more, but obviously with seven games to go, there's still a lot uh, to be decided, so you hope that they can, you know, bring that energy Tuesday night in Washington, don't get caught looking ahead to the Bucks game. Uh, the Celtics will then play Friday night in Utah to close out the week, so three games this week, a back-to-back you know, Rob Williams is back in the lineup, which has been good to see. I like 
the idea of him coming off the bench right now. Um, because I think, you know, yes, you like having Horford and Rob Williams on the floor at the same time, starting-wise, but I think it makes you a little bit more dynamic bringing Rob off the bench, you know, because I think it allows you to play Derek White more minutes, which, I mean, I've, he's a guy that just needs a lot of minutes, and I think that he should be playing heavy amounts of minutes. So I'm glad that he's been getting an opportunity to start in the lineup because he's been great in the starting lineup. I think it doesn't give you a reason to, to take him out, and I think that your bench becomes a lot more dangerous if Rob is coming off that bench. Um, but, you know, we'll see if that continues. So I think we're going to move on, talk a little bit about the Patriots, just a little bit, not going to get too crazy into it. The Patriots have not been, you know, I don't think have been super active recently, but I think a lot of the major free agent activity um, is over with at this point. The Patriots did uh, re-sign Daniel Equale and um, also signed a punter, Corliss Waitman, who I think had punted for the Broncos last season. Patriots, I think, obviously in the market for a new punter. You know, I don't think that he is necessarily going to be the starter, um, but I do think that he'll definitely be a guy who will, I think, compete with, you know, assuming the Patriots draft a punter, um, you know, or picks another pun another punter up um, at a different point in time, you know, whether it's through the draft or a free agent or undrafted free agent, not really sure. Um, take a look at some of the other, I think most of these signings have been covered. The Patriots did uh, release Jalen Mills briefly, uh, but then they brought him back on a one-year deal. So, you know, that was good to see, you know, really like what he's brought to the team the last two years. You know, the Patriots may try him a little bit at safety this season. He does have experience. You know, I think with the retirement of McCourty, the Patriots are looking for someone that can play that free safety, whether it's, you know, Jalen Mills, do they draft someone like Brian Branch from Alabama, for example? You know, I think you could see the Patriots kind of targeting that position um, in the draft. Um, um, oh, yeah, Equale, yeah, I meant to say, yeah, he's been solid, you know, I think in the games that he's played last year, you know, just gives you that defensive line depth. Um, that they think you always need. I think we talk a lot about offensive line depth, but I think defensive line depth is huge as well because you've had guys on your defensive line that have missed games uh, due to injury. So I think Equality coming back is is big. Um, and I think, yeah, obviously there was a news of uh, Dante Hightower's retirement last week. So... Um, that was a, a nice send-off, a nice uh, letter that he had written um, or putting out a statement uh, for his retirement. Just a guy that did everything for this Patriots team and I think, you know, often gets forgotten about at certain points. You know, I think was one of those guys that just always made big plays in big games. You know, you could always rely on Kim to make an important play in a big game, you know, whether it was the strip sack in the Super Bowl or, you know, getting to the quarterback at key times. You know, I think that this is a Patriots team that it continues to 
you know, change in leadership, you know, clearly with Hightower retiring, you know, it wasn't, I know he wasn't with the team last year, but, you know, him retiring, you know, McCourty retiring, you know, this is a, a team that I think is in a state of transition still, you know, as much as people, I think, hate that because people just around here are used to, you know, winning Super Bowls and going to AFC championships. And I think, I think it's just the issue with this fan base is the expectations haven't changed. Um, and I think that they need to, because it's not the same team. It's not the same, you know, Brady Patriots. It's not the same team that's going to the Super Bowl year after year. I think we really have to temper the expectations. Um, but I think just Hightower, just a guy that uh, I think we all enjoyed watching, you know, always made the big play. You know, McCourty is a guy that has been a fixture in this locker room. So, you know, it's up to a lot of the other guys, kind of the younger leaders, the younger guys that I think could grow into leadership roles to kind of lead this team forward in the next four or five years. Um, because one of the things is the Patriots have always had good leadership throughout, you know, really, really over the last 20 years. So, you know, I think it's just continuing to be a state of transition um, in terms of the, the leadership and, you know, whatever else you want to say about this team. But I think that, you know, still, still some work to be done with this team. You know, I think that it seems to be that the Patriots are possibly out on uh, DeAndre Hopkins, which, you know, I think given his age, the type of, the type of wide receiver that he is, you know, it just, I don't think it's a perfect fit in their offense. You know, I think that, you know, Hopkins' ability is kind of more of a, you know, big physical jump ball 50-50 guy. And I, I don't think that that's the type of receiver that they need. You know, I think what they need is someone that more plays to, to the strengths of Mac Jones, which, you know, our accuracy on their short passes, you know, it's not, you know, hucking the ball 20, 30 yards on a jump ball and hoping for your guy to come down with it. Because as we saw last year, like, Mac wasn't necessarily the best at that. And so I feel like, you know, why go and trade for a guy that's going to, you know, I feel like make you be a little bit more risky in terms of the quarterback throws. And I think that the Patriots really need to do, you know, offense needs to be better this year in terms of, you know, not throwing up 50-50 balls. You know, I think that that's not Mac Jones' strengths. And I think as much as people want to beat the drum of number one receiver, you know, it's just, I don't really want to talk about it again, but it's like, I think that this is an offense that, you know, it doesn't necessarily need a, what people refer to as a quote unquote wide receiver one, because it's like, to be perfectly honest, there's not that many of them in the NFL. So it's like, you know what, there's six, seven, eight guys that are kind of your prototypical number one. It's like, you know, I think that teams can operate without those guys. It's not like every team has one of those guys. It's just not true. So, you know, I think that someone that's a better fit is Jerry Judy. I think just his home run ability, his ability to make plays after the catch, you know, comparing the two guys is what I did late last week. And I think that looking at, 
you know, Judy, his numbers after the catch are far better than Hopkins, especially over the last couple of years, if you look at Hopkins. So, you know, if there's a trade target, it's Judy. That's the guy that makes more sense. Um, but I think even if the Patriots don't aren't able to acquire him, they still have a place, you know, that they could get someone in the draft. And I think that there are some good quality receivers, you know, in this year's draft. So, you know, you could see the Patriots taking a chance on that. Could they take a chance on Odell Beckham at some point? You know, that'll be kind of interesting to see, you know, if he remains to be unsigned. So there's a lot more opportunities for this team to get better. But I think, as I said last week, I really liked what they've done in free agency. And, you know, yeah, whatever you want to say. If you want to say that there are too many, you know, you know, low money deals or anything like that. Well, it's like the team wants to be, I think, flexible wants to have that financial flexibility. And I think, you know, this is a team that's never operated giving guys big money contracts. I mean, I know that they did two years ago, but it's like, that's not really, to me, that's not really something that's in their DNA. So, you know, I still think that there are areas to address, but pretty happy with this team so far. So we'll see, you know, if there's anything, you know, else that comes up free agency wise. Uh, did get some breaking news that uh, Lamar Jackson has indeed requested a trade uh, from the uh, from the Ravens. So trade uh, from the Ravens. So maybe you see some movement on that. I don't want to get dragged into the Patriots conversation with him again. It's really annoying to me but you know I just feel like you've built an offense this offseason to try to get more out of Mac Jones you have hired an offensive coordinator that's literally been hired to work with him and it's just like don't think that makes any sense to just scrap all those plans and go get Lamar Jackson just because he's available because it's like I'm sorry he has one playoff win I don't want to be that guy but it's like you know, if, if fans are getting this idea that, oh, we can win the Super Bowl with him, he's not a great playoff quarterback. We've seen that time and time again, that he doesn't play well in the playoffs. So, you know, it's just like, how much of an upgrade is he really? You know, I know that, yes, talent-wise, he's better than Mac Jones. It's not even a debate. But it's like, you have to consider money. You have to consider fit. You have to consider you know, the type of players around him. And I just, I don't think the Patriots are in a position where they can acquire a player like that and bring him in and be like, he's going to be the 2019 MVP quarterback. We're going to the Super Bowl. It doesn't work like that. Sports don't work like that. We all know that it doesn't work like that. You know, so it just is like, people see this like flashy toy and they're like, oh my God, if the Patriots got him, we'd be back in the Super Bowl. But you have to consider fit and money you have to consider all these things so you know i'm not sure where lamar goes you know really could be anywhere i don't don't really know but i know it's probably not going to be here so that's all i'm going to say about that uh that stuff we're going to move on talk a little bit about the revolution who uh are the number one team in the eastern conference with another win this weekend against DC United. Uh, really impressed with the Revs um, in terms of 
you know, what they've been able to do offensively. They've gotten a good group together that are capitalizing on chances. I think that Carlos Heal and some of the guys have been in and out of the lineup, but I think you've gotten a consistent attack game to game. So, you know, very pleased with that win. Rev's getting a couple goals in the second half. You know, Bo tying the game and Noel Buck scoring the go-ahead goal uh, in the 88th minute. Great to see the Revs um, incorporating some of their young talent. Um, really nice to see the three teenagers, you know, get into action uh, this weekend, play major minutes. You know, that was one of the things that John Veneziano and I talked about before the preseason that, you know, we wanted to see more of the young guys get into action. And we've seen that, and they've responded really well. So, you know, it's good to see this team off to a good start, not really with much else to be concerned about other than MLS play. You know, so you've seen a team catapult to the top of the Eastern Conference, and now their reward is playing, you know, for their next five at Gillette Stadium. Uh, the entire month of April, Revs with only one away game against Columbus. Revs will host NYCFC. Saturday at 7.30, so it'd be a good opportunity for the Revs to continue to, to build their game, continue to build, get points. Um, really been pleased with the early uh, early returns of this team, winning four of their first five. So I think we're going to move on, take a look at some uh, league notes and that sort of thing. Um, so just to clarify the Lamar Jackson thing. It sounded like he had requested a trade a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's not like he just now is requesting a trade. He had requested a trade um, weeks ago, so probably before they even put the franchise tag on him. So just to clarify that little thing. So uh, Major League Baseball, I don't want to spend too much time because Eric Bellier and I will be previewing the season. But just a couple of notes here. Um, Anthony Volpe, the uh, Yankees' top prospect, um, will be their starting shortstop on opening day. Uh, the Rays are optimistic that uh, Wander Franco will play opening day. The Braves putting Kyle Wright on the injured list. And yeah, still some spring training games, but then the regular season gets underway on Thursday. We'll take a look at some of the opening games on Thursday. Obviously, Red Sox and Orioles, the Braves and the Nationals, Yankees and the Giants, uh, Philadelphia and Texas, Chicago and Houston. So just some games around the majors on Thursday. So I think we're going to move on, talk a little bit about the NHL, the LA Kings, with a franchise-best 12-game point streak with their 7-6 win last night over the Blues. Um, in college hockey, Michigan, Quinnipiac, um, Boston University, and Minnesota uh, securing securing berths in the Frozen Four. Um, obviously, David Pasternak scoring 50 goals in their game. Um, and also forgot to mention A.J. Greer of the Bruins was suspended for a cross-check to uh, the face of uh, Mike Hoffman in Thursday night's game. Um, so, so one game suspension. Greer was back in the lineup all, uh, last night. So, you know, you hope that it doesn't 
become an issue because it's the last thing you want to do is be taking, you know, stupid penalties in the playoffs. But um, it seemed like it, or hopefully it's just a one-off thing. Don't see that in the playoffs, but just a one-game suspension that he served on Saturday. So we'll take a look at some of the NHL games tonight. Uh, 7 o'clock, Montreal and Buffalo, and then Florida and Ottawa. 7.30, the Devils and the Islanders. 8 o'clock, Seattle and Minnesota. That's an ESPN Plus exclusive game. At 10 o'clock, Colorado and Anaheim, and then Edmonton and Arizona. We'll take a quick look at the standings. Bruins, obviously, with uh, the win on Saturday, clinched the Atlantic Division. So, pretty amazing that they were able to do that. The uh, Bruins were a team that I think, coming into the season, were not really expected to do much, much less have 119 points at this point in the season. So, uh, good for the Bruins as they are. 16 points clear of Carolina Hurricanes for the number one seed in the East. So the Bruins, I think, really just have to win two more games. Um, and they will be guaranteed that number one seed throughout the Eastern Conference playoffs. Uh, the Maple Leafs in second, followed by the Lightning. Um, and then in the Metro, Carolina in first, followed by the Devils and the Rangers. Rangers are closing fast on that number two seed as they've won eight of their last ten and sit just four points behind the Devils. Um, and then in the wild card, you have the Ranger, or excuse me, you have the Islanders in that first position, so they would be lined up to play Carolina in the first round, and then Pittsburgh has that second spot as they would be lined up to play the Bruins in the first round, which, you know, would certainly be interesting, but not... An opponent I would necessarily be overly concerned about. Uh, Florida is three points back of that second wild card. Wild card spot in the West. Minnesota leads the Central, followed by Colorado and Dallas. Minnesota, 93 points, followed by Colorado and Dallas with 92. So things are a little interesting in the Central as things seem to be changing every single day. In the Pacific, uh, Vegas with a two-point lead over the Kings, 98-96 to 96 in terms of points, and then the Oilers third with 91. In the wild card position, Seattle in that first spot with 88 points. They would be lined up to play Minnesota, and then Winnipeg that second spot with 85 points. They would be lined up to play Vegas. Calgary is four points back of that final spot, and Nashville is five points back. And then the uh, the Blue Jackets, the Coyotes, Ducks, Blackhawks, and Sharks have all been eliminated from a playoff contention. So we'll take a look at the NBA. LeBron James returns for the uh, Lakers, uh, or, or returned for the Lakers yesterday. Uh, Bulls, though, beat them 118 to 108. Uh, Luka Doncic will face a uh, one game suspension as he picked up his uh, 16th technical of the season uh, the other night. And so we'll take a look <clears throat> at the uh, NBA schedule. Take a look at some games tonight. 
the Bucks and the Pistons at 7 o'clock. The Mavericks and the Pacers also at 7 o'clock. Uh, Houston and the Knicks at 7.30. Phoenix and Utah at 9. Philadelphia and Denver um, at 9.30. And B. Jokic going up with or going to battle tonight. And then 10 o'clock, New Orleans and Portland, Minnesota, Sacramento. And then at 10.30, the Bulls and the Clippers. <clears throat> so we'll take a quick look at the standings. Bucks obviously still in first, but the Celtics just a game and a half back as they've won three in a row. And the Celtics are two and a half games clear of the Sixers. The Sixers got pretty close to that second spot <clears throat> recently, but the Celtics seem to have gained <coughs> and gained control of that two seed. Um, so the Sixers in third, followed by the Caps in fourth. And then the Knicks and the Nets close out that fifth and sixth spot with the Heat in seventh, Hawks in eighth, Raptors in ninth, and then the Bulls in tenth. In terms of the playing position, and the Pacers and the Wizards, uh, two and a half games back of that final play-in position. And then Denver, still first place in the West. A three-game lead over Memphis, uh, Sacramento in third, and then Phoenix in fourth, Clippers in fifth, Warriors in sixth, and then in the play-in spots, Timberwolves, Pelicans, Lakers, and Thunder with Dallas, a game back of that final play-in spot, and the Jazz a game and a half, so a pretty, pretty scary time for the Dallas Mavericks uh, as they've lost four in a row um, and seven out of ten, so they are on the outside looking into the playoffs right now, which is... Uh, not a position that they want to be in, I think, at this point. Um, so I think I'm going to move on. A couple of NFL notes I wanted to touch on. Uh, Sean Payton had said recently that the uh, Broncos are not trading Jerry Judy and Corlin Sutton. So, you know, clearly that puts a wrench in possibly the Patriots' plans if they were interested in acquiring both of those guys now. I don't know if that necessarily means that they're definitely off the table, you know, but I think that, you know, it probably tells you that unless the Patriots or whoever comes across with, uh, you know, can't say no offer, that most likely those two players are going to stay in Denver. Uh, Bobby Wagner and the Seahawks reunite as he signed a one-year deal recently, the Panthers assigned DJ Chark the other day and the Ravens coming to terms with uh, Nelson Aguilar on a one-year deal so he leaves the Patriots for a one-year deal in Baltimore and based on that uh, trade request I think he'll probably be catching passes from a different quarterback than Lamar Jackson whether that's Tyler Huntley or whoever it is that'd be interesting to see where Lamar Jackson does end up with his trade request. So I think we're going to look at some March Madness. The final four has been uh, decided, and let's just say I did not pick these four teams to make the final four. Um, out of the South region, San Diego State, beat Alabama over the weekend um, and then beat Creighton 
yesterday by a single point, and so they are in the Final Four. Um, FAU coming out of the East with a win over Kansas State in the Elite Eight, another really exciting game. So FAU, the nine seed out of the West, or out of the East, excuse me, uh, with the three-point win over third-ranked Kansas State in that region. So the first game, uh, Saturday at 6, San Diego State and FAU. And then out of the Midwest, Miami used a big second-half comeback uh, to beat Texas yesterday, 88-81. So they advanced to the Final Four. Uh, Jim Laranega's team uh, advancing to the Final Four uh, 17 years, I think, to the day after he had coached uh, George Mason to the Final Four back in 2006. So he coaches another team to the Final Four, Miami, um, in that first Final Four spot, and then UConn uh, destroying the entire West bracket. No game closer than 15 points. Uh, so they steamrolled Gonzaga in the Elite Eight, 82-54. Uh, so Miami and UConn will play Saturday night, and then San Diego State FAU, the winners of those games, will play in the championship on Monday night, April 3rd. So looking forward to that. I think Miami and UConn is going to be a really fun game. Uh, both of those teams have played a really good basketball in both of their regions. And then San Diego State FS, FAU, curious about how that game shakes out. And then taking a quick look at the women's bracket, there are a couple of teams that punched their ticket to the Final Four. Iowa with a win over Louisville last night. Caitlin Clark with a triple-double, so Iowa is in the Final Four. And then LSU beating Miami last night as well. So Miami, or excuse me, LSU into the Final Four. Uh, the other Elite Eight games tonight, uh, top-ranked South Carolina against Maryland tonight at 7, and then Virginia Tech and Ohio State at 9 for the right to play in the Final Four. So be curious to see what shakes out with both of those games. So I think you know, I think, I think that's going to do it for me this week. Uh, we're looking forward to, to Guest Friday with Eric Bellier. That'll be fun. Get him to talk about the... Uh, start of the baseball season. It is that time of year. So looking forward to that. And as always, you can listen to um, podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, follow the social pages. We're always um, updating those as often as we can. So uh, we'll talk to you folks on Friday.